morning, our scripture reading is right there below the song we just sang. It's Colossians 1, 9 to 14. If you have your Bibles, I certainly uh, invite you to turn there with me. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are continuing, uh, we're just in our second week uh, in this brand new sermon series looking at the letter to the Colossians. As, as we looked at last week, this is a letter, it's written by Paul who at this time is in prison, uh, probably in Rome. And he has been paid a visit by Epaphras. Epaphras was a man who was converted on one of Paul's missionary journeys. Epaphras was himself Colossian, so he planted a church in his hometown, and he makes that pretty sizable journey uh, from, from uh, Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. He makes that journey from Asia Minor all the way to Rome in order to pay a visit to his father in the faith. Now, what I want to do this morning as we begin is I want to imagine the conversation with you between Paul and Epaphras. Uh, it should be stated up front, you know, if you were a heinous criminal, if you had some pretty serious charges against you, your prison experience didn't look like Paul's experience here. This is, this is quite minimal security uh, incarceration. It's probably some kind of modified house arrest where Paul's able to have guests. And so, for instance, Colossians opens up and, and Paul says, I'm writing this with Timothy. And then if you flip to the end of the book, Paul also mentions that he is with Tychius, and Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice, Luke, and Demas. And so what we're getting rid of is this idea of Paul uh, writing this letter by candlelight in a prison cell. Uh, this is a men's small group Bible study, isn't it? I mean, there are nine guys here with Paul. And so Epaphras joins them. He makes the journey. You can imagine Paul saying, all right, give me the update. How's the church going? And Epaphras says, Man, they are growing in their faith. They, they love the word. They are prayerful. And, and Paul, I have to tell you, I, I've met these people. I know them. And they even love each other, which is a miracle in itself. This is, this is supernatural stuff. And Paul goes, that's amazing. But he also follows up and he says, well, what are the challenges? And Epaphras says, well, we have challenges too. And there's false teaching that's circulating that's really attractive to us. It's really easy to buy into maybe what's in the air around this time. Things like spiritual knowledge of uh, kind of enlightenment, uh, that, that maybe we're not doing enough as, as just those who believe in Jesus, but we need to add to that um, some kind of striving for superior knowledge, or, or maybe we need to add rigorous moral self-discipline and asceticism to the gospel that we received. Now, I like to think about this scene. I, I understand it was imaginary. I think it's probably somewhat true to history, but I like to imagine this scene because it's just so relatable. 
Now, I'm a pastor, so I can easily get into Epaphras' shoes, and I can think of talking to other believers, or maybe when I go to our denomination's general assembly, and I, I talk to old friends and new friends, and what's the question we're all asking, right? How's the church? How's ministry going? And so I sound like, I sound like Epaphras at that point, don't I? But I would also offer this. I would say if you're a member of, of Christ Presbyterian Church, if you're a member of, of this body, uh, this is also a question for you. Think of Onesimus. He's the runaway slave that we meet in the letter to Philemon. He's a member of the Colossian Church. So he comes, and he also has given a report. And so if you're a member of this church, this is, this is your body uh, that you've bought into. Right? This is not a consumer relationship where you just come to receive something, but rather you have this vested interest in the good of this community and the good of those who make up this community. And so you can imagine Onesimus giving this report as well. And so again, as we continue through this book, I want us to be thinking about where do we see God at work in our midst? What are the good things? Where's the fruitfulness? Where is the growth that we see? But also, we need to take a, a, an idea, we need to take inventory of the challenges, challenges that we face that probably are very similar to the Colossian challenges. And if I could identify that challenge even right from the start, it would be those things that distract us from the fullness of Christ. In chapter 2, Paul warns against being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceits. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful kind of idea to grab hold of. Empty or hollow deceits. Maybe an illustration would be fake fruit bowls. Did any of your grandparents have those or your parents? Some of them were pretty good, right? I always liked the grapes because they were pliable. They look real and then you take a bite and it's empty. And Paul warns against that. He warns against those empty deceits. As Ecclesiastes puts it, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so we're asking, where do we seek fullness apart from Christ? Temptations that we face that are similar to those of the Colossian church. Our question is, what does a fulfilling Christian life look like? And how does it compare to what Paul prays in this prayer? And, and there are two words that I think basically summarize where Paul is going. These are our two points this morning, the two things that Paul prays for. He prays for knowledge, and he prays for strength, and that's what we'll look at together, knowledge and strength. All right, so first of all, how does Paul pray for knowledge? Why is he praying for knowledge? What does this mean for us? Uh, take a look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Paul says this, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. One of the things that Paul frequently prays for in his letters, if you break them down, he's always, it seems like, praying for some kind of knowledge, some kind of growth and fruitfulness in knowledge. Now, we are a church that, that values knowledge. We are in a denomination that, that values knowledge. This can lead to, to maybe uh, caricatures or even criticisms, right? That maybe you can be too uh, focused on the intellectual aspect of, of Christianity. I think there's truth to that. We need to be sensitive to that. But we would obviously, I think, also say, well, knowledge is important. We're to worship God with hearts and, and souls and minds, right? And so if, if scripture and right doctrine aren't filling up our minds, then something else will. So one of the things we can, we can decipher, I think, about the false teaching is that it's a different kind of knowledge. 
Again, it's something to do with a, a higher level of, of knowing, a, a kind of enlightenment, a kind of escape from everyday concerns. I, I think the idea here is that just about all of humanity on this planet is basically focused on, on the stuff down here, right? What, what are we having for dinner tonight? What, what's going on at work? What's going on with my kids? And, and these religious leaders who are in the air, who, who are around in Colossae would say, um, that's too ordinary. God wants something better for you. He wants you on this elevated plane of enlightened spirituality. You want to escape the, the, the mundane and, and just the humdrum of everyday life. But that, of course, isn't biblical knowledge at all. For two main reasons, uh, that is not biblical knowledge. Um, the first one is that there, there are no mysteries to be obtained in the Christian faith. All of the mysteries are revealed. You don't graduate into more spiritual realities. You are baptized into all of them. And so the Christian life is growing in your understanding of what is already yours. My favorite illustration that I've heard of this is uh, to be a Christian is to receive the, the deed to this mansion. Right? You have the deed. And so what is the Christian life? It is entering that mansion and it is exploring every room in the house. Uh, you know, my family occasionally has, has rented an Airbnb, and, and one of the highlights of it, because these are houses, right, is you go in and you open up every drawer and every cabinet and every closet, and then the ones don't open, and you wonder, what's behind that locked door? Right? What, if you, what if you received the title to a mansion? I mean, it would take you forever to open up every cabinet, every drawer. Well, that's the Christian life. A deep and abiding understanding of God and Christ um, it's not new knowledge, but a better discernment of what is already there. All right, so no mysteries to be revealed. We already know the mysteries that are revealed. And then secondly, right, this knowledge isn't just about having the right information, but it's about knowing the will of God. It's three-dimensional knowledge. It's knowledge that's characterized by two words, Paul says here, wisdom and understanding, or it's a spiritual, maybe Holy Spirit inspired uh, wisdom and understanding. And these are two words, wisdom and understanding. They're all over the Old Testament, especially wisdom literature. The Proverbs are all about extolling wisdom and understanding. If I could give you a good historical example, you have King Solomon who ascends the throne after David has died, and, and the Lord goes to Solomon. He says, what can I do for you, Solomon? Remember, Solomon's a king, and so what would you ask for if you were a king? Maybe uh, a better military or more money in the treasury or expanded borders. But Solomon says, I ask for wisdom and understanding. And God says, man, there couldn't be a better request for a king than what you just asked for. Wisdom and understanding. Not intellectual smarts. I'm sure Solomon was plenty smart. But this is how to live, how to, how to reign in light of God's revealed wisdom. It's the ability to not only acknowledge or hear God's word, but the ability to live in light of it. It's, it's to make good decisions based on God's word. So you can hear the difference, right? Not this super spiritual enlightened knowing, but really this, this knowing that informs everyday decisions, walking in faithfulness. If what we claim to know doesn't marry with how we live, then biblically speaking, we don't know it. We can envision uh, taking this Bible survey exam, and maybe it's an advanced one, and you can ace that exam, and yet it is possible that you don't know God at all. The knowledge Paul's talking about, it leads to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I love the language one writer has, has used when he talks about, we aren't called to be spitting images of Christ, 
but fitting images of Christ. I think it's beautiful language. I think it makes sense. I think you know, if, you're, if you're a mother of small children, uh, let me put my cynic hat on for just a little bit. What would Jesus do only gets you so far if you're a mother with small children facing the everyday struggles and exhaustion that you face? You're not called to emulate Jesus in that vocation. You are called to be a fitting image of Jesus, walking in a manner that's worthy. It's different than what Jesus did, but it's consistent with who he is. Or if you're retired and you're a senior citizen, it's the same thing, right? Well, it, it doesn't matter what Jesus would do in your shoes. It's in that calling that you're in, are you living in light of who Jesus is in your life? You can apply this to wherever you are in your life, to be a fitting image of Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So at the end of the day, we're asking, what does God really want for you and me? There's no mystery there. He, he wants you in the word, to be filled with the word, to grow in your understanding of, of the word, to grow in your ability to see how that word impacts every aspect of your life and then obey it. That's not a knowledge that puffs up. That's a knowledge that leads to love. Love of God as we deepen in our understanding of his love for us. Love of others as we deepen in our understanding of, of the humility of which all of this arises. Verse 10, again, Paul uses this metaphor, very familiar biblical metaphor, this idea of walking. Knowing, understanding, obeying, that is walking. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, one foot after the other, walking in obedience in all of life. And as you walk with God, what happens? Where will you see increase in knowing God? The New Living Translation, which is just about a paraphrase, it does a good job with this idea of increasing in knowledge. It says, you will learn to know God better and better. So you have this cycle, don't you? The more you obey God, the more you know God. The more you know God, the more you obey God. Not just facts about God, but knowing him intimately and relationally. So this is the first thing that Paul prays for, right? He, he's heard the report of the Colossian church, and he says, that is why I pray for you to grow in this kind of knowledge that you experience and you intimately know who God is and you live your life in light of that knowledge that you have. That's the first thing Paul prays for. The second thing, this is our last point, the second thing Paul prays for is for strength, for power. Paul prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Then skip to verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. I think this is a good example that we can see in the text right here. of Something that I say often in my preaching ministry, which is the last thing I want to do, is send you back to rely upon your own strength. Right, to hear of what is required of us and then to go as if we can be reliant on our own strength. And you see that here, don't you? Because Paul says, I pray for you to have this knowledge which leads to obedience, being strengthened by God's glorious might. Paul's saying you can't do this in your own strength. It's impossible. I think it's safe to say one of the characteristics of that tempting teaching surrounding the Colossian church is that the false teachers are saying, yeah, you can pull this together yourself. You can achieve, uh, if you put the work in, you can achieve this kind of super spirituality. And Paul says, no, God has to provide. God is the one doing the strengthening. And it's easy to miss this because this is somewhat elevated language where Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm praying you're strengthened with the glorious might of God. But I think it's really beautiful because Paul is saying here what you and I need is not a boost. 
It's not that we need a nudge. It's not that as long as you're trying your best and doing everything that lies within you, then God will go ahead and he'll give you the rest to kind of get you across the finish line. Paul says what you need is to be strengthened with God's might that is in accord with his glory. We need the glorious might of God, even in our everyday lives. What do you think came to Paul's mind when he talked about God's glorious might? You would think maybe creation, wouldn't you? Power, strength in accord with God's glory. He speaks creation into existence, and out of nothing, he creates. Or maybe God delivering the Hebrew slaves from, from the greatest known superpower in the ancient world at that particular time. Or the same power that, that God gave to David to defeat Goliath and the Philistines. And all of these incredible stories that we have in, in, our, in our Old Testaments, Paul is praying that same power for you and me. He's saying you and I need that same power to do this thing that seems so mundane to us. It seems so ordinary. Now what is this thing? just finishing well it's faithfulness maybe you wanted something more dramatic i think we we probably do sometimes have this hunger for something maybe more inspirational more impressive and paul says you need god's power for endurance and patience if you remember last week the character of god's people the essence of the church is faith hope and love and and maybe uh we can hear this word uh that the, the reason that, that you and I, the reason the church doesn't exude much faith, hope, and love, it's as if when people think of the church, it's not faith, hope, and love. Maybe that's a good indication that we're lacking endurance and patience. But it's what we need. We need to be honest about the struggle of the Christian life. If, if Paul has to pray for the power of God for us to be who we are called to be, it must be hard. It must be hard, and there are two temptations here for which Paul prays that we desperately need strength for. Two temptations. First of all, that we would be tempted not to endure, that we'd be tempted to quit, to give up, that we would give up on faith, that we would lose our hope, that we would abandon love. And, you know, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've, you've seen this, haven't you? You've seen people walk away from the faith. You've seen people deconstruct or deconvert. Uh, some of our, our family and friends are, are deeply disillusioned by past church experiences, uh, deeply wounded by other Christians. Some of you in this room right now might just feel cold and distant and hard-hearted. You might be saying, I, I, just, I don't know how God's at work in my life. I, I, don't, I don't know if he is, and, and frankly, I don't think he is at work in my life. And so we need to be honest about hard, how hard it is to keep going at times. This is something Paul talks and prays about regularly. This is a theme that's found throughout the Psalms. It is a struggle to endure in the Christian life, and we need God's strength according to his glorious might to keep us going. Now that's one temptation, and we can fall prey to that temptation. But we also need God's strength to supply us for the second temptation, and this one should also be familiar to us. It's possible to endure in the Christian life with no joy. That's the other temptation, is to lose joy. And again, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you probably personally know what that feels like. You keep up all of the habits, you, you go to church, you do churchy stuff, you may be even asked, do you believe uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ as, you know, as, he's, as he's offered to you? And you may say, sure, I believe it, sure. Okay, I believe it. But there's no joy. And Paul prays, not only will you keep going when it's hard, but Paul prays that you would keep going with joy. 
that God would give us what David prays for in Psalm 51, uh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We need to pray this. God would not have us know about him as if that were enough, but as a normal part of the Christian life, God would have us experience his power to endure with joy, and we need his glorious strength for that as well. And so this is a call to pray like Paul did, right? This is the fullness of the Christian life. This is what we pray for. As we look down the aisles this morning, we kind of realize we're all over the map as we come into this place. And so we pray these kingdom prayers and say, God, give us patience and endurance and give those who have no joy by your glorious might, give them joy. That we would be a people who know God, uh, who know that strength according to the joy that we have received in him. And here's maybe the heart of all of what Paul is saying. He ends this section by reminding them that this strength really does come from the power of God that's already yours in Christ. That this power is really already yours because of the love that has already been poured out for you. In other words, Paul would end here by saying this. It's it's not enough for you just to know what to do, but you have to know whose you are. You have to know whose you are. You have to know to whom do you belong, and you have to know the price that that cost that you belong. So in verses 12 to 14, Paul prays for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see where Paul goes here, right? Why this whole existence of a Christian has to be grounded in gratitude. Paul is saying, like, no one shows up qualified to this. None of us show up qualified to know God or qualified to call God Father. None of us are qualified to please him or qualified to experience his power for us. In fact, it's just the opposite. Really, what unites those who are in Christ is that we all show up disqualified from all of the spiritual fullness for which Paul prays. There's an illustration of this, which uh, I, I heard this week. Uh, of course, one of the, the big stories, probably frustrating when we were trying to get uh, fire news, was that Queen Elizabeth died. So part of my distraction this week has been reading lots of stories about Queen Elizabeth. And I want to share this one with you because I think it's a beautiful illustration for this point right here that I heard earlier this week. The story goes like this, and, and the people have tried to verify it, and they say it sounds true enough. It probably is true. And it's this story. Every legislative session of, of parliament begins with a visit from the queen, which is still soaked in tradition in England. The queen would ascend a grand staircase, and when she got to the top of the staircase, she would go into a room where she would be adorned with her crown, and she would be adorned with a robe, and then she would make this procession into the legislative chamber, and the queen's guards would go behind her, and they would clank the sword on the wall as they followed the queen, kind of making sparks, right? This is, this is all of the bells and whistles to know that the, that the queen is coming. Hallway ends of the House of Lords. That's where the queen would take her seat on the throne, and then she would commission the legislative body to enact the will of the people. But, but things changed because, of course, she was queen for a very, very long time. And so due to her age and physical capacities, she could no longer ascend the stairs safely. And so they had to change plans for the first time in history, and they had to use the elevator. And here's what the story gets interesting. The first year, a mistake was made, and the lift operator did not go to the right floor. Instead, he went to the maintenance room. 
And the doors opened, and in comes Alice from cleaning. Her head down, and she is pushing the cart into the elevator, and she pins the queen against the wall, and the doors close behind her. Alice realizes what she has done too late, and she lets out an expletive in front of the queen, and the awkward silence is finally broken by the queen laughing hysterically. And she invites Alice with her to Parliament that day. And the story goes that once a year, for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her new friend, the queen. I think that's a really sweet illustration. It falls apart really quick, only in the best possible ways, because Jesus is a far greater king than Elizabeth was a queen. And we are not like Alice at all. We don't come from the maintenance room. We come with high treason on our hearts against our king. And yet we are invited by him because of the work that he has done. And that's why Paul says, give thanks. That's why Paul says, central to your identity, where, yes, you need the strength of God for endurance and patience and joy, but central to that identity is thankfulness. Because our God is the God who delights, who delights to take those who are disqualified under the power of their own sin, and he loves to pick them up and transfer them into the kingdom of his son. And such is God's joy in doing this that he was willing to pay the ultimate price for it. That word redemption in verse 14, it's the central idea here for Paul. And we hear that as a religious word. We hear that as a synonym for salvation. But remember, it's an economic word. I think when we talk about redemption outside of church, it still maintains that economic reality. And what that means is there is a cost associated with God qualifying us. And we know in the gospel the price was the life of God's son. It was the blood of Christ. Jesus himself died under our disqualification. He was rejected for us. He was the son who belonged in the kingdom of light, but he entered the darkness. Under the weight of our sins, so that in him we might know Jesus as our deliverer, and we might call God our father. And that we would belong to him in his kingdom of love. So Paul says, you have been redeemed. You have been qualified by the life of Christ given for you. And now you reside in my kingdom of power and love. All of that infinite power that was once turned against you in your treason. Every ounce of that infinite power, which doesn't even make sense. All of that is now turned towards you exclusively in love. And so Paul prays, my prayer is that you would know that fullness of that kingdom. And beloved, if you're in Christ, you're, you're already here. You're already there. You've already arrived. And so our prayer, right, is that we would experience the fullness of this kingdom, that we would walk in the fullness of knowledge and, and power and endurance and joy, knowing that you belong to Jesus, knowing that the Father has qualified you to live a life that is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that is for us. A word that by your spirit you take and you apply into our lives. And so God, that, would this prayer just be all of our prayers? It, it, it should be a very simple thing to, to pray. Uh, this prayer that we just read together, that we, would, Lord, would be, would be people who grow in our knowledge of you. 
that three-dimensional knowledge that isn't just about knowing about you, but knowing you so intimately and in a way that shapes us, heart, will, desire, mind. And Lord, that you would do this work in us by your strength. The same power that, that spoke creation into existence, Lord, that same power of filling us to do the work that you've called us to do. In a world where we need to be equipped with endurance, we need to be equipped with patience. And Lord, we need your joy. Would you shape us, form us into those kinds of people? I'm so tremendously grateful uh, that you are the God who does transfer business. That you are the God who takes us in, in our paths of destruction, in our kingdom of darkness, and for nothing but the love of the Father, you've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. What a gift, what an identity, what a reality. Holy Spirit, would we grasp hold of this reality by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.